This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The 2021 Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival was held in Aotearoa, Dunedin, our UNESCO City of Literature, from the 6th until the 9th of May. In this podcast series, we share recordings from these sessions with you. In this session, Elizabeth Knox and H.G. Parry unpick the meanings and implications of placing fantasy inside the real world, presented by the Otago Daily Times. Hello everyone, kia koutou. Welcome to this, the final session of the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival, um, placing fantasy inside the real world. So um, I'm Hannah and um, I'm honoured to be here with Elizabeth Knox, who needs no introduction, but I'll give one anyway, um, briefly. Just um, Elizabeth Knox is the author of 13 novels, three novellas, and a collection of essays. Her novels have won multiple honours, um, as she herself has also won multiple honours, including the Prime Minister's Award for Fiction in 2019. Um, her latest novel, The Absolute Book, was published in New Zealand that same year and overseas to international acclaim earlier this year. Please join me in thanking her for being here with us. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so um, I'd love to talk a bit about The Absolute Book to start out with. So um, would you mind just giving us a bit of an intro? So what prompted you to write The Absolute Book? Um, How did it grow? Well, for a start, the book that you start writing doesn't have the intimidating name, The Absolute Book. So (laughs) um, so this this started as a kind of a... Just a sort of... It felt like it was an experimental project in that I was idly thinking about a kind of a book called, that that I call arcane thrillers, and I think it's a very good name for them. Books like The Da Vinci Code and Kate Moss's Labyrinth and The, the Name of the Wind and, you know, so on. And I'd ha- been having a discussion, I had a very long discussion um, with Daniel McLaughlin in the Rose Gardens in Wellington, causing his daughter Elizabeth to be enormously impatient, <laughs> I might say. You know, she was in a pushchair and drowsy, but after a while she woke up and I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, but, um, and we would, we both liked those kinds of books, those sort of books were scholarly heroes, And but one thing we didn't like about some of them was their ramping up the the sense of mysticism that... That, it, that there is something sacred, you know, the, the, the first chapter of this book is called A Book with a Light and It's Long Perspective. Um, some of those books, there's, there's the, the holy blood in the Da Vinci Code, which is uh, the descendants of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Um, and, you know, it's... Uh, it's it's supposed to be significant, and it's significant to all the people trying to prevent any knowledge of it coming out. But as a thing, it's not significant because it has no magic. Mm. In the story, it has no magic. And so we were like, well, you know, if you're going to do the mysticism, perhaps you should do the magic. And that what and I was thinking about that, and because I write fantasy, I was thinking, well, yes, but but as a structure for a book, that 
thing where you have a scholarly hero looking for something, a bit of knowledge or an object or or the truth about something that happened in the past. That's a very attractive structure. So I had this this thing that I started writing, which was at that point called Burned Libraries. Mm. And um and it was about a woman who had written a book about the things that threaten libraries, principally fires, though, you know, the the book in in the book is is about lots of things by the time I got to that because I thought burned libraries was a bit insufficient. At I was wrong because there'd been some real bestsellers about burned libraries since then. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um yeah, but I wanted to write a fantasy, and very early on I realised I wanted to open out from this kind of arcane thriller structure of someone looking for something and this, and and end up with multiple worlds. And I decided also very early on that I wanted to write, in effect, a pagan book, um, a book where all religions were somehow equivalent. Mm-hmm. And gods have been were a class of magical being, but their their nature was shaped by human worship. Mm. And also very quickly, it became apparent to me that, you know, the, the, the fact of the, the gods aren't responsible for human life and happiness, but in fact, human beings might be responsible for the character of their their beliefs and their hopes, they might be responsible for keeping their beliefs and their hopes pure and humane. In fact, you know, not letting their gods turn into the gods of the, the Odin of the white supremacists, you know, um, which is basically what's happened to Odin in this book. Yes. Odin has turned into the Odin of the white supremacists and has withdrawn to try to, you know, heal mm. as, a, as a god and a being. Um, so it was that, and and it was also this 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 idea about um, the world, about the planet. So I was I was aware that I was writing a arcane thriller, which was an eco thriller in very deep disguise, mm. and that there wasn't just a hidden object in it, but the that but that the book the book's intention, ultimate intention, was going to be hidden, and there were going to be many other hidden things in it. So one of the characters is not able to be perceived properly, and so that you know, which is basically his story, is that mm. he goes unseen and underestimated. So I, I was just sort of coalescing the ideas, and they came came together. And at a certain point, I just realised I was going to have to, since it was going out wide and coming back together, it wasn't just proliferating. It was uh, things circle round, people you think have disappeared reappear. Mm. No, nothing's wasted. It all just kind of turns back in. Yeah. 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 So I wanted it to do that, and I wanted to to... The absolute book of the title isn't the book you read. The absolute book of the title is is the thing they're looking for. The, that's called the Firestarter. But 
the fire starter is actually the scroll box, not the thing inside the scroll box, which doesn't even get <laughs> yes. mentioned for two-thirds of the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was just thinking when you were saying that, how um, when I was going back and rereading it, knowing what that ending was going to be, how many times, um, how well you linked that idea of um, the burn libraries and the conservation of knowledge with the idea of the conservation and of the planet and ecology, mm. but you don't necessarily... Spot that the first time through. No, I don't. I don't. It's all. It's all there. Yeah. You know, it's not like the ideas are linked, and and um, and they're explicitly there in the mind of that major character who isn't the point of view character. Mm. Shift. He yes. explicitly knows what he's supposed to do, um, and he kind of knows what he needs to be able to do it, but he doesn't know right until just about the end of the book. He he doesn't know that he can, yeah. So it's yes. kind of like there's that if you if you just watch that character and the way they behave all the way through, there's that sort of tension of enormous pressure on them, um, but you're not told. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I was interested too that you uh, that Taryn always started out being the author of the burned libraries, and that was always going to feed out into different portal worlds and so forth. Because I do you think there's a I've noticed a lot of portal fantasies coming out lately seem to have that link between being books about books and books about reading and also being about books that are about travelling to other worlds. Do you think there's a link there? Or was that something you were interested in or did that kind of just happen? Uh well if it kind of just happened, it happened because it's a natural place to go. Yeah. Partly because of the way that we feel about the libraries of our youths. That mm. you go into a library and people leave you alone. Yeah. And they don't which watch which bookshelves you go to. They don't say, you know, get out of the adult section mm. to the child. <laughs> and you pull books out of shelves and you flip them open and their worlds, yeah. So the, you know, it's, that's a sort of a poetic image, but it's also a truth. And so um, th- th- those things naturally belong together. So every time it occurs to a writer to have such things happen in a book, I think it's just <laughs> it just follows on um, yeah. from our feelings about bookcases. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and about libraries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you have a scene when you were going through this? Was a scene that was your particular favourite to write, or that really you enjoyed writing at the time? Or? Oh, yeah. Okay, so frivolous scenes. So <laughs> always, yeah, yeah. So um, every scene's a key scene. So the, just particularly towards the end of the book, you realise that there are things that if you can't get them right, the book's not going to be right. So it's brinksmanship, brinksmanship, and the longer the book is. The more, um, <laughs> the more nerve you need in the end. Yeah. yeah. Um, but some things just happen when you're just trying to get the business done. So there's a chapter called The Pale Lady, and The Pale Lady is the name of a pub um, in, in, near the near the house that Terence family once owned. There's a little village and there's a pub called the Pale Lady. Um, and it's called the Pale Lady because there there's a door to fairylands thereabout and the local people, the old ones, the ones who are very local, very local families, they know a thing or two about it. So that's why the pub's been called that. And the scene has got the 
rather beleaguered um, police detective, a detective, detective, what is he? He's a detective inspector who has kind of got mixed up on this whole adventure because he has been researching a cold case where he believes that the heroine, Taryn, who's written the book, he believes that she caused the death of the man who went to prison for manslaughter after killing her sister. When the man got out of the prison, he died. And he thinks she she did it. She did. <laughs> yeah, it's not yeah. it's it's not a mystery. It's there right at the beginning yeah. of the book, pretty yeah. much. So um but so he so he's been on her tail and you know, and he's a very nosy and very confident and very, very stubborn Javier type character, right? But he just gets mixed up in all this fairyland stuff. And he's been being helped in his investigation early on by, ra- rather strangely, by MI5 because Taryn has talked to two suspicious men who MI5 has been watching and they don't know why she talked to them and what these men are up to, but it does have to do with a with a server farm being built in Pakistan that they think is cyber terrorism, okay? So, yeah, it's got this, so it's got spy thriller in it too, this book. So, yeah. so Raymond Price is, he lets people think he's MI5, but he's actually MI6. He's, he's a very sinister <laughs> character. And in the scene in the pub, Raymond Price is trying to find out what Jacob Berger, the police inspector, knows about various things. And Jacob, by this time, is deeply compromised in his knowledge um, about gods and Odin's ravens and fairyland and the rest of it. And he's really trying to just, you know, kind of act calm, but also get evidence about things that are going on that he knows mean something. So they're picking each other's brains. And then Shift, the highly magical being, turns up. Um, and deeply, there's a moment of kind of farce, a farcical moment where an object that... Um, has been described, um, people know exists in, in in this sort of wrecked car, which is evidence for something, is pushed across the table, Shift pushes it across the table to, to um, Jacob being helpful because it's got a phone inside it. And, <laughs> you know, sorry, you can use my phone kind of thing. And, um, yeah, there's a moment where everyone, where the MI5, my six guys looking at this object, and Jacob's looking at him, pretending not to know anything, and 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 the all powerful one who no one knows is all powerful doesn't know a thing and doesn't know what the hell he's done and what's wrong with what he's just done and is just sitting there being complacent. And it, yes, it was my funnest scene to write because it was just silly, and <laughs> it's silly and it's a hoot, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's so funny thing listening to you describe it. How many different genres are feeding into that moment too? You yeah, know, that's yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, that's right. And so, and yeah. and that it and that it is that it that I was determined to let that book be a mixed tone book um, yeah. to be or you know to have an awe and wonder and and tragedy and beauty, but also for it to have silliness and farcicalness and anticness. I wanted it to actually just do all that. Partly because I love Mikhail Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita, and mm-hmm. I'd read that at 16 first, and it made me the writer I am. It was the mixed tone mm-hmm. in that particular work of fantasy. So this is me getting to the age where I finally felt I had enough nerve to try to 
talk back to the Master and Margarita, not write a book like it, but write a book that had the same values and 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 thought we, you you don't need to achieve your effect, your emotional effects and intellectual effects and everything in a book by maintaining the same tone. You really you really yeah. don't. You can actually throw things in as if it's life. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I mean, and the scope too. I mean, like I was quite struck all the time reading it, how it starts out with something that's quite realist and personal, which is obviously the death of Taryn's sister and then and her subsequent revenge. And it's something that doesn't necessarily, there's no markers in that, that it's going to belong to a fantasy book. It could be a, a realist book. And it stays with her journey for a lot of the book. And yet the journey becomes about something a lot bigger and a lot more cosmic and there's all you know the ending goes all kinds of interesting places was it we was it difficult to balance those things like when you start out with something very personal and obviously was it difficult to kind of yeah play those personal moments off against the the scope of what's happening well but well because it is Taryn's book and Mm. because she's a person who's um got a professional life but she sort of stopped her personal life in its tracks by doing something so self-ruining as as it's not that she takes revenge it's that she gets someone else to do it for her of course yes yeah and that's a terrible thing to have done so she's kind of denied herself a lot of life Mm. and I wanted it one of the things I wanted the book to be also was a recovery narrative and I wanted her to find a way of being useful to other people and herself which is basically my definition of living a good life is being useful to other people and to yourself yeah um so I wanted her to get there and so so the thing is that it doesn't indicate that you're going to that it's going to open up yeah except I like to think that atmospherically it has a sense of everything being a whole lot of things being fated and slightly haunted Mm. Yeah. Right from the you know the tunnel of oaks that Beatrice dies in when she's when she's hit by the car, yeah. um, sort of continuing on from there, the, just the, just the feeling that there's uh, that everything's being observed not just by the reader and the author or the characters, but by also by something else in the book that's pervasive, mm. which you know and indeed it is because. You know, yeah. at a certain point, the raven of knowledge is present. So, yes. <laughs> yeah, know, that kind of tends to, and actually, in that, you know, at that very spot, but not at that time. Yes. But, you know, that yeah, yeah. I wanted to, to to make the book have a feeling of being slightly haunted mm-hmm. right from the get go, so that so that the fantasy wouldn't become as too much as a, of a surprise. Mm. However, having said that, when I wrote it. I also wrote a prologue, which was completely fantasy. So set, um, the prologue was 400 and something AD. And it had in it shift as a child and his mother. And um, when I handed the book over to VUP originally, my editor, Ashley Young, and my husband, Fergus Barrowman, insisted that this, the book had to have this prologue 
because they thought it needed to tell the reader it was a fantasy right from the start. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, they thought that. Yeah. Everyone else who read it in the company, my publicist, the other editor, so on, the copy editor, all said, no, 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 don't, no, don't use it. Yeah. Just, just go into it like it's very personal and let it do that, which was my feeling. So in the end, I just went, went with my feeling. But it was a nice bit of writing, and I wanted to know what to do with it. But it's in that book, not I, as the prologue. I was wondering. Yeah, I was, <laughs> was going to ask. Yeah, because it does. Yeah, and I loved it. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, yeah, and it does. Really I, th- I love it where it is. Yeah, I think it it just kind of gives that context about him right at the right moment. Yeah, I'm glad yeah. you said that too because. I handed the the bit of writing uh, when I when I got my editors, my American and English, and they because they were all it was um, Viking in America and Michael Joseph in the UK, but they're both Penguin Random House, so they all worked together during lockdown. They were all locked yeah. down, so I had two American editors and one English editor um, happily sending notes back and forth between them before giving me a consolidated in three colours <laughs> set of editorial notes, mm. saying first you don't need to do anything at all but these are some thoughts we have which was great I was like thoughts yes. give me thoughts yeah um yeah so green red blue you know wow <laughs> yeah. lovely um and they didn't want to put their that as a prologue either mm. I mean they were like you're right that's you know and I was like yes I know <laughs> <laughs> but they were like I-, I think I should go at chapter 18 which is a lot earlier in the book than it is and I Tried to put it there, and I thought, and, and I had, I had various bits of consistency that weren't going to work, or various yeah. reveals that were going to come too soon. And then the, I, I just sort of said to them when I'd given them back the, you know, reworked manuscript. Mm. Um, yeah, no, I found a better place for it for these reasons. And then they were like, "Yes, you're completely right." And then <laughs> I was like. Ha. You <laughs> got it in there eventually, but it's interesting that you can't see that stuff to start with. Um, yeah, yeah. I was glad to go back because I could see all this. I could see stuff, and then I also was able to react to one or two pieces of confusion where there was just confusion from some people. You know, just you know, the person was like, "Well, that, you know, I was a bit fuzzy about this." Some readers, and then other readers were like, "Oh, you've ha ha! She's got this wrong." <laughs> and I was like, "Well, no, actually, I just have to make that a bit clearer because you would have noticed that two chapters back, it actually tells you how you're supposed to think about that." But never mind. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that at time. Yeah, did yeah. it feel? I mean, I sometimes I you know when you're when you get another go at something and you get to go back over, you kind of see things in a book that just seem clearer to you at the time, and you get more of a sense of what the book is actually about. Did you ever have that when you were revising it for the international version or did you kind of already... No, I knew I, I had, had a, a, I had a strong feeling of... I mean, when I was writing it, I really knew what I wanted it to do. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know how I wanted it to do it. I mean, which is what keeps me entertained. I mean, I don't know. Yes. <laughs> but I knew how I wanted it to feel as a reading experience. Mm. So that was kind of my guide. And I, and I don't think my understanding changed. But it's all, it was finessing, you yeah. know. And then you get to do some more finessing. Because I had actually let go of it too soon. 
and I'll, I'll tell the story because it's a true story. So, so VUP, my beloved publishers, New Zealand publishers, who I'm married to, literally, um, <laughs> uh, they had paid a large sum of money on a book that hasn't been delivered yet. And it makes a lot of sense that they paid it and everything, but the, the books were looking a bit strange. So they were like, we need a bestseller for Christmas. Elizabeth, hand over your book. <laughs> so I handed I, – I would have quite liked to sit on it a bit longer, but, I mean, I was, I was confident about it. It's the state of it. But sometimes you just want to sit on something for six months longer because, yeah. because of the finessing that you might do. But, mm. uh, but I'm really glad I got to do some more finessing. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, it seems like I've asked earlier if you'd like to do a reading from it, and it feels like we've talked about it enough that that would be really good. Would you mind reading a little bit from it now? And take as long as you like. <laughs> it will be, you know. Well, I've been speaking too quickly. <laughs> no, no, not at all. We want to get as much out of it as possible. Great. Okay, so. I don't like to do long readings on sessions, so um, I've got a shorter one, shorter one here. Uh, so this is quite far into the book. This is Taryn in her third time going into um, the Sid, as Fairyland is called, where the she lives. So I use the Irish pronunciation for the people and the Welsh pronunciation for the place. So the Sid. And the she. Um, and she, and Shift, her friend at this point, they're already friends, who's a very magical, you know, half part fairy, part God knows what he is person, um, has, has, has just left her alone again in a strange place. And she's at a kind of a, She's on the banks of a river, on her way to the moot, which is the great fairy meeting, where in this case they're going to decide which souls are given away for the tithe, which human souls of their, their human friends they pass on to hell. And um, so she's, she's on a big campsite that's got a few she and many people, and most of them are in a pretty happy state because they're travelling with their their caregivers, the their beloved she patrons. So alright. Taryn shouldered Shift's bedroll as well as her own and went down to the river. She found a stretch of water sheltered from the current by the landing and a shingle spit. The water was sparkling and several other people were swimming. Taryn took off her clothes and walked into the river, which was fresh but not cold. She swam and rinsed herself and sat in the shallows. She even had a conversation with a middle-aged man whose face was stippled by white scars. It looked as if someone had been chipping away at him with a chisel. He spoke in a sparse, formal French with much more fluent dialect mixed into it in a little English, enough for Taryn to tell him that she came from London and was a writer of books. And for him to tell her that when he was last on earth, he was a poilu, an infantryman, and before that a cobbler. He originally came from a village in Brittany. They managed that little and then sat companionably, 
the water hissing as it lapped against the thick mat of hair on his chest. She tried some of her she on him, and he taught her a little more, all of it related to the river, upstream and downstream, boat and sail, voyage and current. The sun left the water, everyone got out and picked up their clothes and followed the sunlight higher up the water meadow. They stood and dried in the air, no midges or mosquitoes came to molest them. Taran put on her sweaty garments and joined the soldier at his fire, where there were several more Frenchmen as well as two joyful Vietnamese teenagers who were making everyone pull their food for as much of a feast as they could muster. Taran contributed her walnuts and fresh apricots. Someone came around with a crock full of powerful juniper-flavoured clear spirit. The crock still had scabs of fresh dirt on its sides as someone had only just dug it up. It was clearly a piece of human provisioning because none of the she at the fires near Terrans accepted any. Everyone at her fire drank and ate and got a little inebriated. They sang for a bit and then tried to get Taran to tell them, in her poor French, how the world feared. Was it possible yet to be poor and live decently? Were young men still sent to die in wars made by old men? Were the meek still waiting to inherit the earth as scripture promised, though generations of them were already under the ground and a grave wasn't an inheritance? Not really, Taran said of the first. Yes, of course, of the second. And of the third, no, it's not like that. They made us believe we're weaklings if we can't do everything for ourselves, by ourselves. We all say, so I've failed, when mostly we've been failed. They made us afraid of one another, but of themselves, they say, there is no they. Taryn's French didn't let her down. These were simple things to express. The people around the fire all looked at her sadly and nodded sagely. She stared at their human faces painted by the firelight and thought how those they loved and served would eventually sell them into perpetual misery. She wanted to tell them to run away. What were they going to say of themselves when their souls were marched through hell's gates and their bodies were buried, no doubt, with flowers and music and fine ceremony? Were they going to say, So I've failed. Such and such a lady or gentleman no longer loves me and has laid me by. Taryn understood that her existence was only of use or not of use to her society. She was a consumer contributing to economic growth, which was an unquestioned good. To exist, she must spend her life spending. But these people were going to be sold to buy more time for time-rich, heartless people. They were going to be literally damned by association, never mind the original state of their souls. Heaven would not intervene, as it did in Yates's Countess Kathleen, because, for a start, none of these people was a countess. They were the numberless others of history, counted only by the tithe. They were marks and a ledger. Taran wanted to say, I'm a consumer and a client, and your property. We have value, but it has nothing to do with who we are. But she didn't say that because what good would it do when true understanding of what was in store for them couldn't save them from any of it? Thank you. Wow. Wow, that hits hard. Um, 
I was going to say it was one of my favorite things about that book and about the she, how on the one hand their society can be so pastoral and so appealing and so wish fulfillment, but on the other hand, they're so cruel and the cost is so high, you know. Yeah. And the cost yeah. to them too. Like yes. it's, 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 I didn't want to do one of those things where you have the, the brutal people are brutal. It's, it's all, Experience. It's the situation they've got themselves into. That's sort of like the yeah. relationship to the first world, to the third world. Um, the fact that the, our wealth is so often based on the labour of people in countries where they're not paid well enough, you know? You think, you know, then it, what we're told at this point the, then turns into our personal responsibility to do something about it, whereas mm. w- which is capitalism's great trick. So we don't fall for that. <laughs> <laughs> Collectively, yeah. we tear it down, not personally. <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah, I wanted to. I wanted to get to the point where you see what they're doing, what it costs them, and you know all the mistakes they've made, and yeah. you know how they've got there. And then see that just absolutely every, you get to a point where absolutely everybody's threatened and in a bind in the book, and you just yes. know this yeah. is this is a knot that can't be untied, mm. and partly it can't be because the people who are trying to throw off their oppressors or their oppressive conditions are all in competition with each other. So what I so yeah, so I try to get to the point where. There's unwilling collaboration in some parts and willing in others that actually moves everything onwards, forward. Yeah. And, yeah, I was had a very, very strong moral intent for the book. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, apart from mostly I was just wanting to pick people up and carry them off. But, but entertaining people and transporting them and making them feel better is also a strong moral intent. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and I mean, I think with the the she, there's a degree of looking the other way in terms of how their society's worked all this time and getting them to a point where they have to face it and do something about it. Yep. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, they still don't have to do something about it, but then as soon as they realise there is something that might be done, they throw themselves into it. It sort of says a lot about who they originally were Mm. Yeah, before they kind of turned into the sad, brutal, tragic, wonderful people they are. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to ask about them and and about, because one thing I love about so many of your books is that when you have a lot of otherworldly figures like the she and like Shift in particular and like, obviously like Zass and the Vintner's Luck and now and in the Dream Hunter books and um, you know, and what I love about them is they do feel genuinely alien and otherworldly. You know, they don't sort of feel like human beings dressed up. And yet at the same time, there's, like you say, they're, they're, there's something, you know, there's obviously something human about them and there's something, you know, recognisable about them. Is that a hard thing to balance? Is that something you, when you're creating other worlds... Well, look, I'm, I'm just habitual with this, so at this yeah. point, I don't think, I don't, I don't think it's difficult. But I do understand that it, there are technical difficulties to it. But I'm so used to tackling it. Yeah. And you, you do, you, you do 
have to do the thinking about like if you if you're giving the conditions for the existence of this being like mm. um noun being virtually a slave though with a mind of his own that's kind of behind the injunction that he's not supposed to use it until yeah. he can um that's the golem in dream hunter and dreamquake um you sort of work out the nature of the being and you don't and you and if it's a if it's a mythical creature with a mythical background or in fact a, a shift in the book is is actually a well-known person from myth it's all hidden, <laughs> so but it's really obvious once you realise. You go, oh, God. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Um, so you do, you do you don't have to slavishly follow. You don't have to know everything. You've got to do your version. So yeah, so I always do my version, which has to feel true to what other people have done. But but God, you don't want to go listening to all the nerds who are going to say, <laughs> oh, that's not what so-and-sos are supposed to be like or yeah. such and such is all. Your Kelpie, your Kelpie would never do that. No, <laughs> you don't. No. <laughs> They're just reply guys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love Shifty. He has my whole heart, by the way. <laughs> Good. It's wonderful. Good. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I love about, you know, and related, I, lo- I love about him that he turns out to be the, you know, he's, he's the little god of the marshlands. I was just wondering about that title particularly, I mean, and about the names of other people in your books, but I was thinking about that title. Is there any reason that he was the, you know, you put him in the marshlands in particular? Uh, yes, well, because I have very strong feelings about wetlands. <laughs> well, because, um, yeah, I keep I have a I have a nephew, a very very clever nephew who's been doing a four year engineering scholarship in in Auckland and will not indulge his auntie by becoming a, a drainage engineer for goodness' <laughs> sake because it's the future. Yeah. yeah, and um, yeah, no, I, every time people start talking about building seawalls, I go like, <laughs> you have a thing, it's called a marsh. Yeah. <laughs> We're supposed to have them. There were many more of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, you actually look at the statistics of how, mu- how, many, um, how much wetland is drained in New Zealand, and you say, like, oh, that can't be good. Yeah. yeah. L- uh, large bits of Dunedin used to be, yeah, and mm. really, they want to be underwater, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> and Yeah, you they keep yeah, going. Yeah. Put those plants back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so it was that, and also it was the margins. Yeah, he yeah. wants the margins, so... And it, the first time you hear, hear him refer to that, he's being mocked by a mm. demon who's about to whip him off into hell. So he yeah. just, you know, the demon gives him a formal address, but he's mocking him. Yeah. Yeah. Little god of the marshlands. Mm. Yeah. And it's nice as a little god as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's that, yeah. that pagan kind of thing where there's a whole lot coexisting yeah, at big once. Big gods and yeah, yeah. The, the little ones. Yeah. 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 Great. And I was going to ask, yeah, say about his name and particularly the other name in some of the names of the other characters in the book. Was there, how do you go about choosing them? Well, this is a tricky one because actually I came to Shift as a name because I was, you know, I needed something to disguise this person. But then I was going back through all the, all the, all the um, Welsh and other Mm -hmm. mentions of this mythical person who, shift is 
And one of the names that mm-hmm. this person has is the Dan- uh, Viking Skifka, which means shift. Oh. So I thought, right, I'll just call him shift. And then I remembered C.S. Lewis, and I remembered yeah. the ape. And also, because, because you know, my the person that this person supposed, you know, is – and one version of the legend is also the Antichrist. Mm. And Shift and C.S. Lewis is the Antichrist. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, oh, well, that's nice and shapely, and it's all there for me. I don't have to be clever about it. My readers do. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's there. It works, yeah. I mean, it just works so well with all the purgatory and the, you know, it does become quite a, you know, vaguely C.S. Lewisian cosmic narrative, but obviously it, by the end, but obviously a twist on it. Yes, and, and, yeah. and um, I, I had occasional poor, baffled reviewers. America's a funny place. Um, (laughs) So I've had a few, she really hates God, doesn't she? It's like, yeah, no. No. (laughs) (laughs) This is a a pagan and animist book, you know. If you want to look at its its view of the godliness of the world, you look at um, Hayao movies, which, you know, um, Shintoism. Yeah. Yeah. That That it that it makes sense, but, you know, as soon as you get there, there is only one God. I was just going to say, yeah, the train journey in Purgatory feels so much like the one in Spirited Away, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, was, I was letting that, that happen. Really so. luminous quality. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Were there any, I mean, because obviously, again, one of the wonderful things about this book, apart from the mixing of genres, is the mixing of different mythologies. Um, were you, were you, does there, was there any kind of method behind how you chose what myths you want to play with? Were there any that you are just were your favourites for some reason? I knew the book had to go various places, and I knew I had to go, well, the book's going to acknowledge that there's all this, you know, like like any god that that any human being has ever worshipped is probably exists to, you know, in some sort of shrunken back form. Or, but it's pretty much like American gods, you know. It, yeah. it takes that same approach. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I was foregrounding some things because I wanted to go there. So I wanted to have Odin's ravens in the story, but not Odin. So I sort of quietly smoothed him out of the way. And, he does and, pop up. Yeah, he, he pops up. Yeah. yeah. But um, And I decided to make the ravens female because I just – because I did. Because <laughs> why not? Things. Yeah. Why do they have to be male? But, uh, but And I know, knew that I wanted to have a – a really important key scene in Purgatory. And so Purgatory had to be a thing in the story. Like, yeah. you know, there had there had to be such a place. And the way I'd imagined it, it was that Fairyland was made out of stolen bits of other worlds. Mm. And they had, in fact, made the realm of all the gods to effect by linking them. Like, everything yeah. evolves from... These this these beings arriving at some point, like it's the science fiction bit, really, yeah. and then kind of like um, stealing territory and then making a hub. And mm-hmm. so um, there were the, ha- the I was going to have the heavens and that all the hells of different religions, all the heavens, but only mention what I needed for the story. But you know that the rest of them are there. Yeah. So you only pass through Elysium at one point. Um, Taryn's father, when he thinks he's having a screen test from Peter Jackson, actually is taken to the place where his screen Brilliant. test from Peter Jackson yeah. is going to happen, but he's actually walked through a bit of Elysium, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah. 
that was that's pretty tremendous fun. Isn't it? <laughs> I love that scene. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So anyone who hasn't read this book is going, what the hell? Yeah, That's sorry, why... but yeah, wait for it. Wait That's for why it. it's so big, right? Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's got a lot of different cosmologies in there. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Including the great cosmology of Wellywood, yes. Yes. <laughs> the great God, Peter Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> or the little God, Peter Jackson. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, I was going to say, and obviously there's, the the angels and demon side of the mythology was something that you'd re, that you'd used in the Vintner's Luck and its yep. sequel as well. Did was there and there are some some similarities between them. Was there a difference in the way you wanted to approach it here or like because it, yeah. Well, I wanted it to feel different. I want didn't want anyone to mistake the you know the brief off stage and in a story appearance of you know the prince in his mantle of smoke who's yeah. Lucifer um, for the Lucifer of the Vintner's Luck. And for a start, they're physically different. So, yes. you know, yeah, 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 definitely. Different colouring, yeah. different wings. Like, yeah. yeah. Just the whole thing's different. And also, you know, Lucifer's dead in this book. So, yeah. Um, it so, feels very different. It doesn't feel like yeah, there could be a cameo from different. the... But the yeah. one thing that, I, that is the same in both books is that the demons are the colonised um, indigenous people of hell. Mm. Which is something that's mentioned in in Vintner's Luck that you know yeah. the the fallen angels have yes. taken over. Yeah, and I just put it in that book too because it's such a it's such an interesting idea. If you so, if you just go from the start that you think, well, you know, the demons do all this stuff that's horrible. Yes, but they really don't have their own. They don't have sovereignty. Yeah, mm. so. There's a whole lot of demon sovereignty stuff going on there, <laughs> and there is quite a colonial, anti-colonial aspect in, oh, well, yeah. Yeah, in, in <laughs> yeah. all them, you know, in the way the way yeah. you envision fairyland, you yeah. know, with the sheep being exiles, you know, yes. carving out their yes. particular section, yeah, yep, and the no, demons so, yeah, <laughs> it's it's got politics all over it, yeah. yeah, of all sorts of all sorts of, but I mean they're all linked because because yes, if you yeah. t- if you look at the book ads. You know, being uh, being pro saving the planet and anti capitalism without with that being a hidden one of the hidden purposes of mm. the book, then then of course it's going to talk about colonialism. Yeah, too. absolutely. It's, yeah, it's obvious. It's just going to move everything off into mm. uh, off into um, fantasy examples. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and do you, do you see that as being part of the role of fantasy as a way of talking about issues? And yeah, I think the one thing that's for science fiction and fantasy, what one of the really useful and wonderful things that they do is shake people free of what they think they know about ideas and 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 historical situations and what we take as realities. You know, if if you if you take a situation and you put it somewhere else and you play it out in some different way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. It looks like, yeah, we've got time. Um, questions. Getting time for questions from the audience. So I'll I'll stop talking and hand it over to the floor here. Does anyone have any questions they want to ask? Please, if those who've read the Absolute Book, please remember the scene in the Absolute Book with the festival. And <laughs> no, no, put, no, no, please, please do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> 
Kia ora, Elizabeth. Um, yeah, my question was about the scene, about the readers and writers <laughs> in the yeah. book. And um, how close it is to your feelings, really, about these things. And <laughs> why, why, is, why are you still engaged with them? Because- oh, look, I love festivals. I, I, I love readers, right? You know, who wouldn't love readers? So, so yeah, but I, I kind of wanted to do that. I did want to say something about because I've watched this happen with with other writers getting you know being on festivals and I've seen had versions of this happen with myself. Whereas if you write a book that has you know visibly a certain amount of expertise to it, like even if it's a fantasy book, it's got it's got real world knowledge packed into it. There's might be someone who just wants to demonstrate what they know who jumps up. And I've seen that it has happened to me, but not very often, but I've seen it happen so often. And I've seen it happen a lot more to women and a lot, a lot more to young women. So I was just kind of trying to make that point. <laughs> I was like, and here, you know, this is, this is what this looks like. And, and when that indignant older woman gets up and doesn't, doesn't say anything about the, the other questioners who've been demonstrating their acumen and finding fault, um, just, she just gets up and determinedly with her red face says, well, I liked your book. <laughs> she sort of represents a whole lot of, audience members yeah but really I mean I was just making it like real you know and Mm -hmm. saying something I wanted to about about you know some of these things that happen in festivals but at the same time I really just wanted to have Odin jump up and ask his question (laughs) (laughs) that was the whole point yeah Yeah. anyone else everyone's gonna be shy then I'll just keep on going um and I I love your books Elizabeth and I'm wondering and um we're, we're all learning as Pākehā about colonisation, obviously, and I know that you were here in that last talk with mm. Becky Kittle. Mm. And, that was great. Um, and how this learning comes out in your books and over time and how um, that creates a difficulty that many of us don't have to deal with, which is that yours, your learning is in black and white over time, and, and, and I wonder how you manage that. Is that clear? Ah, uh, you mean that I get it? That I get it down? Like you know, well, everyone go. This is the state of Elizabeth's exactly you know, at this point. <laughs> spiritual, moral, and political education. But not point. only that, your the whole past is still like it's there written. Oh yeah, we right. And we can pretend. Oh, this is the state I've been in the last twenty-five years. Whereas, mm. whereas. For a writer like yourself, yeah. you who is moral and who is talking about these things subtly and in hidden ways sometimes, um, it's there. It's all still there, and therefore, yeah, you you've can got see that. You can see the of it. growing. You, you always hope that, to a certain extent, that your that you know your growth. Well, it's to do with maturity and life experience, but it, but it's also to do with where. You know the society's understanding's going. You know where it's at, but um, I think that's the great joy of of writers with longer careers is that you can see that play out, you, and you can see the fact that there's things that bug them that they will keep. You know what is it? The bones they keep gnawing on, and um, mm. and you know things that won't let them go that 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 come back. 
Um, but it is funny when you when you meet someone who's doing going to talk to you about your whole oeuvre and they say, "Well, you said you said," and after said, uh, <laughs> "La la 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 la." So do you still believe that? <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> Oh, her, yes, I believe she existed. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that person. But, yeah, I yeah, I would never disavow my young self. You know why? Because everybody has a young self and you meet young selves every day when you meet young people and you look at them and you go, you go, everything that you think and feel is contingent, as contingent as everything I think and feel, but I've got less time to to keep going with all the learning. You've got all this learning ahead of you, and that's fabulous. But you're authentically who you are now, and your experience is absolutely authentic as it is now, right from the you know your first three-year-old trying to explain the world to you. I mean, the idea of there is such a thing as age and wisdom. There surely is such a thing as age. <laughs> but, uh, but, but you know, we're, we're all real people with real views, which is one reason I think 16-year-olds should have the vote. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I give three-year-olds a vote. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Anyone else? Yes. Uh, you mentioned briefly being published in America and the UK, and I was wondering uh, how you felt your books were understood there. Do you feel as though people understand them the same way as your New Zealand audience? Um, I don't think quite in the same way. I think, and also, you know, according to the the confidence of the people, they think they understand them thoroughly. <laughs> so that's you know, um, you know, the the the, the I always say that there is a certain amount of the, the confidence of the big cosmopolitan centres is is actually a form of parochialism. But mm. you know, it's, yeah, you can't ever make that understood by them, and it's not you know doesn't matter. It just needs to be understood by us. But I do <laughs> think, I do think, um, I'm always surprised that I do get these sort of strong reactions from people with strong. Christian religious beliefs in in America, and sometimes they're positive ones. Like they will go, "Yep, that makes more sense to me than what I hear when I go to church." You know, <laughs> and you go, "Okay, yeah, like, like, like pretty much like the nuns in my signing line, you know, in Adelaide years ago, when I kept seeing them coming closer and closer, and I was like, "Oh my God, there are nuns in my signing line. What am I going to do?" They came up and they all crowded around me and. The one with the, holding out the, the the their sisterhood's copy of the book, soul copy for signing, said, "You've renewed my faith." It was I was Linda, oh, yeah, and and I was like, "Wow, that's oh my god, this is I can actually see what's going on." You know that you know that if you move things a bit, you know, make things real in a different way, but yeah, so sometimes you get the the hostile reactions, but they're just much stronger. Like we're not a we're a very secular society, so I wantonly go and um, you know tackle religious belief mm. uh, one way or another in my books, and probably I wouldn't be quite so um, bold about that if I came for, if I was American. Yeah. Mm. Um, kia ora. I've I've got a question that's 
both, well, it's very specific. So reading your book, I read that the bears, um, there were bears in 1500 that ate the fresh vellum of the letters of St. Jerome. Mm-hmm. And I have to say I Googled it because I, I was so fascinated by that and I wanted to know if it was true or not. And I couldn't find out the answer, so which is why I'm really, yeah, I'd true. love to know. Oh, it is, I wondered. But I guess that also made me think quite a lot about um, how these really amazing details that are real fit with fantasy and uh, whether you, um, in creating your novels, um, how you sort of bridge, bridge between fantasy and reality to create worlds, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, so the well, all right, to start with this with fantasy has to feel real. So I guess the feeling of reality I mean I always go from how reality feels to me and reality sometimes feels very magical to me. And I take I just like to think of what Margaret Mahi used to say about that. She always approached things that way, the the sense of the marvellous and the sense of wonder in mm. the world that I think I was just born with that worldview, so it only feels like um, adding fancy, you know, and then shading it. That the world does feel haunted and magical to me. So I guess it's an aesthetic thing. I don't. It never feels like a big move to me. Um, as for the beer, and the monastery of Jura, one beer, yeah, one hungry beer. Um, so that and a number of the other really fascinating library things all come from um, Lucian X Polystron's book, library, The Library on Fire, which is in the acknowledgements. It's a fantastic book. And I mean, honestly, God, yeah, <laughs> you should find it if you can and, and read it. It's just great about the calamities of libraries. Yeah. Mm. Fantastic. Do we have time for one more? Just one more question? Okay. Uh, anyone else? It's just the simplest question in the world, but what are you working on now? Of course. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I'm about three months, I swear, away from finishing a young adult book, which I was writing at the same time as this, but this one to go first. I was writing three books at the same time. The young adult one's next finished. It's called Kings of This World, and it's another Southland book like Dreamhunter and Dreamquake and Mortal Fire. Yeah. So. Fantastic. Okay. So excited for it already. Um, so, um, yeah, I guess please um, please join me in saying thank you to Elizabeth for talking to us. That was so, so interesting. And, oh, and I should say thank – I've got to say thank you to the Otago Daily Times for sponsoring the session as well. Um, but yeah, so please join me in saying thank you so much to Elizabeth. This Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival podcast was brought to you with funding from Copyright Licensing New Zealand and the expertise of ORFM. The festival also offers thanks to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Dunedin City Council and the Otago Community Trust. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.